once upon a time, in a land far away, a man called Dr. Edward Burroughs tried to teach me and my colleagues New Testament Greek. Some of you know how this goes. <laughs> once we had, went very well. Yeah. Once we had mastered some of the basic vocabulary and the verbs, regular and irregular, or at least once we had passed an exam, <laughs> we, we were let loose on a gospel to practice. And the idea was that by studying a gospel together, that would both enhance our Greek knowledge and also that it would teach us important skills of biblical exegesis. And we studied the gospel of John. One of the outcomes of this was that when we as trainee preachers were sent out, seldom two by two, normally one by one, (laughs) as we were sent out to preach in local churches, these congregations got a lot of John's gospel. (laughs) At least they got a lot of John chapter one. (laughs) Because we did it first, and so we knew it best. I actually preached several sermons from John chapter 1 and several sermons from John 1 verse 29 and there we read the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Actually I didn't preach several sermons from John chapter 1, several times I preached one sermon from John chapter 1 and I keep trying to tell myself surely it wasn't at least seven times you preached that sermon, I fear it may have been so. (laughs) Anyway back in the classroom chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, no indeed word by word. We worked our way through John's Gospel. And I think in our better moments that we did it with a sincere earnestness. We knew we were dealing with big stuff. The Gospel of John in the beginning was the word. The Greek that sticks with you. John's Gospel, the word that became flesh. John's Gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. If I remember correctly, perhaps like some of you, that may well have been the text that was preached the night I think I heard Jesus call me to be a Christian. To throw it wider, John's gospel, the gospel with my goodness, nearly as much theology as Paul. John's Gospel, the Gospel with the I Am Sayings. John's Gospel, the Gospel with the seven signs, the seven miracles that reveal the glory of Jesus so that people might believe in him. Indeed, John tells us that's the purpose of the Gospel. And so in John 20, verse 30, we read, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh yes, by the end of the course we knew stuff. (laughs) Or at least we had the notes that Dr. Burroughs gave us, and thankfully they were very complete and detailed. I think another consequence of us studying John's Gospel was not simply that many congregations got 
a sermon in John's Gospel, but I suspect that many congregations, when they got their new pastor fresh out of college, would often have a sermon series based upon John's Gospel. (laughs) And I think among the choices that were made would be either those great favourites, the I Am sayings, or the seven signs that we find in John's Gospel. This is good for a sermon series because... You can get seven or eight sermons out of each because you have to have an introductory one where you show off your Greek and the knowledge of what I am means and all of these things before you get into them. And then week by week you can do the sermon series. I suspect, however, that if there was a competition between the I am sayings and the seven signs, that people would choose probably choose the I am sayings. And I think the reason for this is John 2, verses 1 to 11. (coughs) I mean, it's the first of the signs, but to be honest, it's a little bit awkward. I mean, John tells us that he included the material he did. He didn't have to put this one in. And because he included the material that he did, we would expect as the first of the signs something big. Something significant, something major, something that might indeed deal with all of the complexities of the world. In contrast, what we are told seems a little bit, can I say this, disappointing. A little bit prosaic, if not indeed profane. I mean, water into wine at a wedding, where the implication is that the people had already Quite a lot to drink. How disappointing for the first of the signs. Oh, don't get me wrong, there's many things we could preach from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. No doubt if we were going to preach it, we could do an introduction to the cultural background of Jewish weddings. (laughs) Some of us. Some of us have done that. Uh, an introduction to the cultural background of Jewish wedding, pointing out, of course, unlike our weddings the last several days, maybe pointing out that unlike in the West, the, the, the real star of a Jewish wedding was not the bride, but the bridegroom. We might, however, push a little bit into the details and explain, despite the fact the bride wasn't central to a Jewish wedding, for a Jewish woman, particularly from a rural village, Uh, her wedding would be one of the days in her whole life that would be free from many of the other grinding and regular responsibilities that she would have to live with. And so it would indeed also be an occasion of celebration for the bride. We, We could do that in our sermon. I'm sure that we could also maybe ponder a little bit, why was Mary there? And why was Jesus there? Why had they been invited where there was a, a kind of family wedding. Mary seems to be better known than Jesus in the story. That's maybe just the implication. And indeed, did Jesus turning up with the disciples create the problem? Were there now too many people at this wedding? <laughs> a small wedding, a rural wedding, additional guests come. Were they partly to blame for the hospitality problem that suddenly emerged? We could ponder that perhaps in our sermon. Or, if we were preaching this, what we would certainly want to talk about was what a disaster it would be 
in a wedding of this nature within the culture for people to run out of wine. A failure of hospitality would have been something absolutely major. It wouldn't have been a sin, but it would have created shame. And in a culture of shame and honour, shame is a very, very powerful thing. And at the moment of a wedding, when honour should be lifted, to face shame would be somehow a double whammy. That might be worth thinking about. Some people suggest that in our postmodern, post-industrial societies, the biggest challenge we may have to face evangelistically is not people's sense of guilt, but people's sense of shame. That would be worth developing in a sermon. Or if you were the more exegetical type who likes to get into all of the details, perhaps you would want to explore that conversation that took place between Mary and Jesus. It's a strange, strange conversation. Mary goes to Jesus. She doesn't actually ask for his help, if you notice. She simply describes the problem. They have no more wine. Jesus appears somewhat blunt and Dutch at this point. (laughs) Woman, why do you involve me? He replied, I can say that. (laughs) My hour has not yet come. Yet, Mary doesn't take this as a no, clearly. She doesn't take it as a refusal. And instead, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What on earth is going on in that dialogue? (laughs) It's a very kind of strange dialogue. In preparation for this sermon, I did look up a detailed exegetical article that offered several pages of explanation in order to solve this problem. After reading it, I decided not to include it in my sermon. (laughs) But you could, or we could, and certainly we would want to know, already at this point, my hour has not yet come. Along with the phrase on the third day, Already at this point, and indeed already in John chapter 1, we are being reminded that the incarnate one would be the crucified one who would be the one who was raised. The one who was crucified was the one who was incarnate. The one who was raised was the one who was crucified. The resurrection attests the glory of the one who became incarnate. Boy, we could do some theology in this sermon. Or, if you wanted to take a different approach, maybe you could approach this through the perspective of some of the different characters. The servants. Of all people, they seem to have known what was going on. The master of ceremonies, or the steward, not steward. (laughs) The steward, the kind of wedding planner, maybe, Frank, for anyone who's seen the film. You need to be a certain age. Of which clearly only I am. (laughs) The wedding planner who's asked to go and try the wine and is impressed by it. Or maybe the bridegroom. The bridegroom who gets the, the steward coming and praising him for the wine. Who undoubtedly had to do what you and I have had to do on occasions. Which is to smile and nod and agree. Even though we don't have a clue what a person is talking about. Oh, the best wine? Yes, of course. (laughs) We could do 
that. If we were preaching from John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11, we could do all this and more. And undoubtedly, we should spend some time talking about the fact that the six stone water jars, large that they were, were normally used for ceremonial hand washing. And it's the water in there that Jesus changes to wine, demonstrating that he indeed has come into the world, the word become flesh and made his dwelling among us, to bring something new, something distinctive, something spiritual and something transformative into the religious life of people. Amen. We could preach this. We could do all these things, yet water into wine is the first sign. I mean, in contrast to the three healings, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking upon the water, and indeed the raising of Lazarus, which are the other signs, I mean, it seems all a little bit profane. Of course, I know that some people do want to argue that the wine wasn't real wine. It takes them longer to do this, and apparently it took Jesus to perform the miracle in the first place. (laughs) And of course... We do want to be able to discuss the use and abuse of alcohol. But not here. For that's not the story. And instead we should embrace the story. A story where water becomes wine. No, that isn't what happens. Where water becomes the best of wine. Saved till last. John writes, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. In these verses we have a miracle caused when Jesus becomes involved in a situation. And responding to the situation he rescues honour from the jaws of shame. And he signs to us. He shows us what it means that the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. Yes, really among us. Creating unexpected holy moments. Moments that add rather than detract from people's lives. Moments that enrich, enhance and enable those he comes into contact with. Recently I was chatting with some folks about over the years I've conducted a number of weddings uh, for people who normally didn't attend church. Particularly in my, my second ministry Somehow this became a feature of what I did. I think I conducted one wedding for for a couple who had asked me, and because of that, their friends must have thought I was some sort of vicar for hire. (laughs) And uh, therefore, several people would ask me, and for some of these people, their contact with church was virtually zero. I conducted a number of these weddings, and it led to a few adventures. I told some people about the story of mad dog but that's for another time and agreeing to do these weddings I I kind of developed a little bit of a routine I would ask the couple to come and see me I would share my testimony with them before I even asked them about them because they were asking me to do the wedding I would explain to them why as a follower of Jesus I would do their wedding and have I changed my mind on whether or not I would do weddings for such as them. And then at times I would tell them that it didn't actually matter to me whether or not they believed in God. Because God would be at their wedding anyway. Because the existence of God wasn't dependent upon their belief. 
The only question was how would they respond to the existence of God who was going to be at their wedding anyway. And so as I was coming and I believed in that God to get me certain things came with me. I would always pray. I will always read scripture and I would always deliver some sort of sermon. So the question was did they want me to do their wedding? Most people agreed. I often read from this passage. It's a kind of standard scripture to read at weddings. What I noticed was that people who were not familiar with church often laughed when I told this story. They too seemed surprised that Jesus would turn water into wine. I often commented on their laughter and used it as an occasion to speak of the fact that Jesus too wants to break into our celebrations as well as our tragedy to enrich, to come to our lives and to enrich and not detract from them. Not everyone agreed with my decision to do these weddings. I was criticised. The church caretaker put it very bluntly on one occasion. I guess at times I did worry about it. I had made the decision to do these weddings honestly. But sometimes maybe now I was a bit like Mary, the mother of Jesus. I was trying to get him involved in stuff that he would turn and say to me, what is this to do with me? I mean, these people didn't even go to church. But it's a strange thing to say. On many of these occasions, as I stood there believing in the God who others didn't, and read scripture, and prayed, Jesus actually turned up. He didn't come with his disciples. (laughs) But he was pretty present by his spirit. And it wasn't just me who knew Somehow he came. And it seems to me that those of us who are servants and disciples of Jesus should be ready to anticipate, instigate, activate, promulgate, create, cooperate in the creation of such moments where the presence in Jesus elevates people's lives. That we should be part of that. To do that, Like the disciples in the story, we need to be willing to travel with him. And Jesus will often go places where the church still dares to turn up. And to be part of that, like the servants in the story, we're going to have to learn and anticipate to try and be obedient to sometimes what might seem like strange commands. In the preaching class last semester... I introduced participants to the work of Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock was one of the most famous and I think significant homileticians at the end of the last century. And I want to finish with a Fred Craddock story. And I just tell it as he told it. It's not mine. And this is what Craddock told. He says, I was invited last year in mid-October by the University of Winnipeg in Canada to give two lectures. One Friday night and one Saturday morning. I went. I gave one on Friday. As we left the lecture hall, it was beginning to spit a little snow. I was surprised. And my host was surprised because he had written to me, It's too early for cold weather, but you might like to bring a little windbreaker. Just bring a little light jacket. The next morning when I got up, 
two or three feet of snow pressed against the door. The phone rang. My host said, we're all surprised by this. In fact, I can't come and get you to take you to breakfast. Uh, the lecture has been cancelled and the airport is closed. <laughs> Summer in Winnipeg. <laughs> That's not in the story. I said, uh, it's, it's okay, I, I, I'll be alright. No, no, he said, if you can make your way down the block and around the corner, there's a little depot, a, a bus depot, and it has a cafe. I'm sorry. I said, I'll get around. So I put on my little light jacket. It was nothing. I got my little cap and put it on. It didn't even help me in the room. <laughs> I went into the bathroom. I unrolled sheets of toilet paper and I made a nest in the cap so that it would protect my head against the wind. I went outside, shivering. The wind was cold. The snow was deep. I slid and bumped and finally made it around the corner into the bus station. Every stranded traveller in Western Canada was in there. Strangers to each other and to, to me and they were pressing and pushing and loud and I finally found a place to sit. And after a lengthy time a man in a greasy apron came over to me and said, What will you have? I said, Can I see the menu? He said, What do you want a menu for? We serve soup. Oh, what kinds of soup do you have? And he said, soup, do you want some soup? <laughs> I said, yes, that's what I was going to order. I'll take the soup. <laughs> he brought the soup and I put the spoon in it and put it to my mouth. It was the worst soup I've ever tasted in my life. It was really grey looking. It was so bad I couldn't eat it. But it was warm. So I sat there and put my hands around it. It was warm. And so I sat there with my head wrapped in toilet paper, bemoaning and beweeping my outcast state with the horrible soup. But it was warm. So I clutched it and I stayed bent over my soup stove. The door opened again. The wind was icy and someone yelled, Shut that door! And came this woman clutching her little coat. She found a place not far from me. The greasy apron came over. What do you want? She said, a glass of water. He brought the glass of water, took out his notebook and said, now what will you have? She said, just the water. He said, look, you've got the order, lady. Well, I just want a glass. Look, I have customers at paid. What do you think, this is a church or something? <laughs> now what do you want? She said, just a glass of water and maybe time to get warm. Look, there are people that are paying here, so if you're not going to order, you have got to leave. He got real loud about it. So she got up to leave, and almost as if rehearsed, everybody in that little cafe stood up and headed for the door. I got up and I said, I'm voting for something, I don't know what. <laughs> Okay, okay, the man in the greasy apron said, all right, all right, all right, she can stay. Everyone sat down and he brought her a bowl of soup. I said to the person sitting there by me, who is she? He said, I never saw her before. Well, the place grew quiet. 
but I heard the sipping of that awful soup. I said, I'm going to try that soup again. I put my spoon to the soup, and you know, it wasn't bad soup. Everybody was eating the soup. I started eating the soup. And it was pretty good soup. I have no idea what kind of soup it was. I don't know what was in it. But I do recall when I was eating it, it tasted a little bit like (coughs) bread and wine. It tasted just a little like bread and wine. John writes, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Almighty God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that in the days and the weeks ahead you will enable us to see and to participate in holy moments, perhaps in strange places, where the presence of Jesus incarnate, crucified and risen by his Spirit breaks out. And breaks out in such a way to transform, to enhance, to enable people's lives to be the richer. Lord, we thank you that we can pray this. We pray it not lightly. Because the one indeed who turned the water into the wine was the one who indeed, like the serpent in the desert, was lifted up on the cross so that all people will be drawn unto him. We can pray that, Lord God, not lightly because we know that the one who was lifted up on the cross and placed in the tomb was also the one who was raised from the dead and reigns on high. This is our God, the servant king. For that we give you praise. We can come to a story such as this, which at times seems so prosaic when we face so many of the problems in the world that we've already prayed for today. We think of other situations. We can think of the situation in Australia We can think of situations more personal to all of us in the room where some of us may be going through deep trouble and a parable like this can seem so ordinary until we remember that here we have the revelation of the Son of God who has made his dwelling among us, who wishes to come and to transform. Oh Lord, come and transform. And may we be willing as servants and disciples to participate in your work that reveals the glory of Christ in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.